Hi, I'm Ben. Hi, I'm Rob. We've been mates since we met at drama school in 2004. We're both actors, and for the last 10 years we've been working in all sorts of productions, from small fringe shows to big arena tours. We love the theatre, so we thought we would make a podcast to bring you a series of inspiring conversations with interesting people from the world of theatre. So this is our podcast. Welcome to Inside the West End. Inside the West End with Ben Morris and Rob Copeland. Thank you for downloading episode 11 of Inside the West End. Follow us on Twitter at Inside West End, or if you want to contact us, then email InsideTheWestEnd at gmail.com. Coming up, we speak to Philip Griffiths, the man who was recently given the Guinness World Record for achieving the longest amount of time spent in the same production. He's been in Phantom of the Opera in the West End for 25 years and counting. You'd be forgiven for thinking that a man with that accolade might be a bit jaded of his job, doing the same musical eight times a week for 25 years. But the reason that we wanted to speak to Philip is because, as you're about to hear, he's as enthusiastic about the industry now as he's always been. Plus, he was in his 40s when he started in Phantom, so he already had a huge career behind him. Uh, So here it is. Here's our chat with the legend Philip Griffiths. My name is Philip Griffiths. And you're listening to Inside the West End. We are backstage at Her Majesty's Theatre on Haymarket with Phil Griffiths. Phantom of the Opera has been a huge part of your life. It has by no means defined you, but it has been a part of your day for the past 25 years. Why have you stayed so long? Um, I've done a bit of everything in it to start with. When you know the show, when I came into it, I came in a swing and I came along because Anything Goes, I was on holiday, and Anything Goes got its notice while I was on holiday. And I came back early, because um, a colleague, Anthony Lynn, rang me to tell me that the show was coming off. So I cut my holiday short, came straight home, and he told me, but they're looking for people at Phantom. But he said, they're looking for a Rowl and a Phantom cover, and I'm neither of those. But he said, why don't you just ring them up and see? So I rang Sharon Jones, who was the company manager at the time, and I knew her. Um, and I said, Sharon, I believe you're doing auditions. I said, I'm not a Phantom and a Ral cover. Oh, it doesn't matter. She said, come anyway. And uh, I did my audition and I sang the most ridiculous piece. She's Only a Woman to Me by Billy Joel. For Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> I, the reason I sang it was because I had auditioned for Aspects of Love the week before and I thought, I'm not learning anything else. So I sang it. And of course, I only sang some really some good top notes in it. So I finished and they said, yeah, yeah, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. Right, Anthony said, I need to hear a top C because I was going to cover Pianji. And he said, I'll give you a scale to I said, I'm sorry, Anthony, I don't do scales because I thought they'll be crap. But I said, what I will do is I'll sing you the first line, opening line of Evita. Requiem Eternum. It's all those top Cs. It's hideous. <laughs> and Anthony said, that's fine, okay, that's fine. It's not beautiful, but it's fine, it'll do. So he said, can you just wait up there for a minute? So I stood on the stage and Howard Harrison came up. So he said, if, you, if you'd like to do swing, it'll be for six months. So I said, well, fine. If that's the job, that's the job. I'll take it. Thank you very much. And of course, I did that for six months. Then I went into the show. In 1998 till 2000, I came out of the show to be resident director on it. Because Jeff Ferris, who was our then resident, was not well. And he rang me on a Saturday when I was on holiday. And he said, would you consider being resident on the show. Well, it was assistant, his assistant, actually. I said, do you really think I could do it? He said, Philip, you're the only one that can. He said, I need somebody to say to me, 
Yes, as soon as possible. I said, how long have I got to think about this? He said, 15 minutes. So I had 15 minutes to, to say to Susan, what do you think? She said, well, I think you can do it. I then rang two people. Mary Miller, who was the original Madame Gere in the company, who I trusted implicitly. She said, Philip, you'll be brilliant, but watch your back. I'm not saying any more than that, okay? I wanted to do it because it was something else for me to add to my experience, my career. And I must say, I thought at first it was going to be difficult because I was literally going from being an actor in the company to being outside of the company looking after it. I was still covering Pianji and still covering Andre, so I'd still got a company connection in that respect. And I had the proviso put in my contract that if they didn't like me doing the job or I didn't like doing the job, that I was to go straight back into my plot because I did not want to be made unemployed by a situation like this. Tell us about your training at the Royal College of Music in Manchester. So I went to study as a classical singer and um, did, well, I did four and a half, five years at Manchester. I got an extra year because it was a performance course. What was life like? I'd never been out of Wales until the day my parents drove me from mid-Wales to Manchester, and I thought we were on the motive when we were on a dual carriageway. I had to borrow my uncle and aunt's car because my father was worried that our car would break down on the way. And it was a Sunday. I had one suitcase and an overcoat. I didn't really live the high life. The difference between musical theatre stuff and doing opera stuff, there's worlds apart. The opera world is very precious. All the scarves around the throat, you know, making sure that you don't talk when you're out in the fog, blah, 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 blah. Do you feel that training has changed? I think things have changed a lot. Colleges these days seem to churn out people. We were hand-picked. After finishing your training, Mm. you go to Glyndebourne, Mm -hmm. you're then working professionally. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your first, the start of your career. Do you remember your first day? Very much so. It was to do... I shouldn't really mention it because we're in a theatre... But it's the unmentionable opera by Verdi. (laughs) You've been put into the extra chorus of this unmentionable opera. Are you superstitious, Philip? Yes, very. Why? Because I wouldn't mention the unnamed opera. (laughs) When we worked together, I used to love finding you and some of the other (laughs) old old school actors. Stop whistling about the place. Is it an enjoyable thing to be superstitious in the theatre? For my generation, yes, it is, I think. It doesn't stress me out. I just enjoy the sort of, you know... When, when I go off on one, when people do do something that makes me superstitious and they, they think... Oh, they yeah. say McDonald's. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> White in his eyes. Yes, yes, or whistling. When I first went to Manchester, I did hardly any performing. So I used to help backstage. And I was doing some dressing, I think, of somebody. And I started to mention the unmentionable opera <laughs> and I was caught hold of literally by the collar shoved outside the door made to turn around three times swear and knock to ask to come back in so that stayed with me so you I mean your career must have taken off now you were in several original West End casts mm. Vita mm-hmm. Chess Chess anything goes how did you get from opera to that it happened um, in fact I bumped into this chap a couple of weeks ago um, down in Lewis John Cox he was the head of productions at Glyndebourne he said I think you ought to do musical theatre. I said, why? Because I'm not good enough to do opera. He said, no, 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 it's not that you're not good enough to do it. I think you'd be better at musical theatre. So I said, John, I know absolutely nobody in musical theatre because I had put the blinkers on. In Manchester, it was opera. You didn't talk about musicals because there was the divide between the two um, professions. And he said, if I give you the name of an agent, will you chase it up? I said, yes, of course I will. So he gave me the name of a woman called Marette Morvan of Fraser and Dunlop. Now, Fraser and Dunlop was one of the biggest theatrical agents 
in the West End. So I rang her and I said, um, John Cox has asked me to contact you um, with a view to you representing me and possibly finding me some work. I'm in opera at the moment and blah, blah, blah. And she said, would you be free to go to New York to do Freddie in My Fair Lady with Rex Harrison? Well, there were, I said, sorry. She said, if John, if John Cox has recommended you, um, and I've got this job, she's I'm pending, I'm waiting for somebody to fill it. You've rung me, you're the one. So she said, tell me a little bit about yourself. So I told her. She said, what do you look like? I said, well, I'm dark, I'm Welsh, and I could sometimes be mistaken for Spanish, Italian. So she said, no, no, that's fine, that's fine. So I got home and I told Susan. And she said, that doesn't ring true to me at all. She said, there's something cagey about this. I think you ought to go and see her. So we were allowed to have a day off in a week at Glanbourne. So I arranged this day off and I rang her and I said, I'm coming up to London. I didn't tell her I was coming up just to see her. I'm coming up to London for a singing lesson. Can I pop in and meet you? Yes, yes, that's fine. Fine. So I went along to Regent Street and the door into her office was glass. And I knocked on the door and she came to me and she went, but you're not blonde and blue eyed. I said, I told you on the phone what I looked like. Anyway, she then tried to do all sorts of things for me. She tried to get me the part of Magaldi in Evita. And she came in to the Prince Edward Theatre when Hal Prince was uh, doing the auditions. And she sat at the back. Very unknown thing for agents to do, but Marette Morvan was big news. I didn't get the job. And she said to me, what did you wear when you did your first audition? I said, well, I don't know, I can't remember. She said, so you didn't wear the, the, what you were wearing when you first auditioned for them? I said, well, no, I don't think so. Ah, well, that's where you went wrong. She said, what they saw the first time, they really liked. And you should always remember that. Wear the, exactly the same clothes the first time they see you. And if they recall you and recall you, wear the same clothes, even down to the same underpants and socks. You can wash them, she said. Do you still do that now? Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Whatever they see the first time, and I always tell my students or anybody I'm coaching... Whatever you're going for, try and find out what the show's about. Find out what it's like, what the look is like. Go looking like it, because I said, they can't see any further than noses, some of these people. Did you ever struggle in those earlier years? Ben, it's always been a struggle. I mean, I was asked once, I went to a casting thing. So I went in to see this one agency, and I was sitting having my interview with some girl behind a desk. And as I was talking, this chap came through the door, and I'd got my photographs on my lap. And he looked over my shoulder, and he looked at them, and he said, one question... Are you lucky? I said, lucky. He said, do jobs just fall into your lap? I said, absolutely not. I've had to work really hard for everything I've got. My photograph went straight into the bin. Have you ever considered stopping? No. I've always been driven. And I've always believed that if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And I can honestly say that I've never... I've only been out of work in all the time that I've worked, for no more than two months, since 1972, when I first started working at Glyndebourne. Wow, that, that's quite... Only twice have I ever had to sign on. Something has always happened. So when, when you did have a family, how did that uh, affect your view of the industry, or did anything change? Not really. It gave, me, it gave me another reason to work. Susan and I have always been a team. Ever since we got married, we've always had a joint account. Everything has been a joint thing. So when she worked, it was part of the, the firm. All goes in together. I mean, I would, have, I would have liked, I suppose, to have had the opportunity to have said, actually, I'm not going to do this job. I've done what has come, and I've been grateful for it. I've loved every single minute. And I can only say one job in my entire career is the one that I hated the most, 
but it gave me a steep learning curve. And I, it was 19 weeks of torture. That gave me the benchmark as to where I would never go below that. Is show business a game that you need to learn how to play? Definitely. I was told once by our resident director, Philip, you know how to play the game. Okay? Okay. <laughs> now, the game, the game is you say yes to everything, and whatever is the no, you keep it back there. You don't let it come forward. You always put on what they want to see. Read into that what you like. But yes, there is a game to play. And I play it. And I have played it. And I've learned so much on my own. Believe me. There's so much that hasn't been taught by anybody. It's just what I've gleaned from experience. I think that, that what you've just said sums up a huge gap in drama school training. Mm. I don't think it's actually their responsibility to teach, actually. It's not a gap in their training. It's like, maybe something like they're failing. It's mm. not. Mm. I mean, some people have a natural gift of being able to do it. And some of my graduates and students that I've mentored, mm. I've found it very easy to pass on. In a very subtle way, always think twice before you speak. Hope you're enjoying the conversation. Stay with us and we'll be back to the chat in a moment. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast. We release a new episode every Sunday. And if you subscribe, it'll just appear on your device ready for you to listen to. It's really easy to subscribe. Just go to your podcast app. If it's an iPhone, then next to the logo for our show, you'll see a little settings wheel that looks like a cog. Click on that. A few options down, it says subscribe. Or if you're using an Android phone, then on the Double Pod or Pod Bean app, next to the logo of our show is the subscribe button. Press it. Easy as that. And the best part is it's completely free. Rob and I were looking at uh, some of the stats earlier on and we've had literally tens of thousands of you listening to our show all around the world, which is really fantastic. However, only 13 of you have left us a review on iTunes or a rating. Now, we put a lot of work into making this show for free um, and we want to keep doing that. So please, this week, we are asking you to give us something back. Please just take a couple of minutes, rate our show and give us a quick review. It makes a big difference to our place in the charts and a huge difference to me and Rob. Also, if you've not already heard them, all our previous episodes are there, available for download. We've got some great guests, great chats with Tim Minchin, Ivan Obazada, West End producer, Killian Donnelly. You will have heard of some of them, some of them you won't. Don't let them put you off. We've purposefully picked people who are fun, have interesting backstories. So check them all out. Make sure you stay tuned right to the end of the episode and you'll hear a clip revealing who's on next week's show. Now back to the chat with Dame Philip Griffiths. 25 years later, mm -hmm. when the orchestra starts warming up, do you still get excited? Yeah, because I'm the first person on that stage. Of course. The minute you have the announcement out front, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Majesty's Theatre, etc., 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 the lights go down and it's a blackout. I'm the first person that walks on that stage and I still can feel that moisture there. I dried one night years ago. I got up onto the thing and we were going along and I suddenly said a word slightly differently. And I thought, what did I say that? What? What comes next? And I went completely deaf. I couldn't hear. And there were all the people, you know, on the floor in front of me. And everybody was trying to cue me. I couldn't hear a thing. And I looked out front and thought, I've got to leave. I've got to get off <laughs> because I can't carry on. And I went to go and I thought, no, I can't do that. The, the chandelier's still in. I've got to sell it. 
So I had to go right back to lot 665. The orchestra are all strumming away underneath. I'm thinking, what the hell is going on? I was the only way I could get out of it. For nights after that, I was in hell. I had to go into the problem, because I always used to go into the problem and just go through a couple of sentences just to warm myself up into it, but I stopped doing that. Um, but then I had to start doing it again. How do you feel when you sit and listen to a cover go on? Because you're on for Andre or whatever. For some reason, you're not playing the auctioneer that night and somebody else is. It's another person in the company. It's somebody else that's employed to do the job that I do. That's their job. That's my job. I never, ever talk about a part as being mine. If somebody's on doing it for me, whether I'm on holiday, whether I'm ill, whether I'm on doing an unstudy, that's their job at the time. It's not mine then. I play the auctioneer, as indeed two other people in this company do, uh, as understudies. So I have no grip on anything. For you, as a member of the cast, what makes a good company member? I think it's the diligence of your worth ethic, ethics. And a lot of this comes from what you train as, how you're trained, how you're brought into the business. And I don't think, as I've said earlier on, I don't think people are brought into the industry as well as people like myself were because there are so many. There's a huge amount of people being taken on. And I do think it's all of it because it's cash. Yeah. It's the money keeping these colleges going. My daughter, for instance, now, she's auditioning for the colleges. There are three musical colleges in London. She's having to pay £100 a time to audition. It doesn't go towards pianists. It doesn't go towards adjudicators. We don't know where the money goes, but it's expensive. As well as that diligence, uh, being part of a company, you're very playful backstage. Mm -hmm. You love a prank. Mm -hmm. I draw the line at anybody doing anything to me or to anybody else on stage in front of 1,200 people. I don't mind the gags happening off stage, in the dressing room, in the corridors, wherever. What's the best offstage prank? you can think oh, of it's being played whether it's on you or you on someone else you've witnessed there's the famous one on YouTube of Barry James with, I don't know if you've seen yeah, yeah. the intro to act two of course yeah. but when Barry came out through that door <laughs> so explain very briefly what they did to Barry James well the thing is that Barry was in his dressing room he'd, he'd fallen asleep one night and he'd missed the top of act two and there was nobody there. You remember the show, Ben, and Andre and Fearman have to do these bumps. They get closer and closer together. But there was no Barry. So I thought they'd put this tape of the entourage for Act Two outside Barry's room. <laughs> the door was shut. Started playing. Yum, pum, 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 pum. The flew open. Barry James is a little man, and he's got this cloak on, and he's got this mask on his face. <laughs> he was like, oh, shit! <laughs> just running on and we were all down the far end watching it it was hilarious the other trick they wanted to do which they never got round to doing actually was to put cling film across the door so that when he came out <laughs> because, straight into the cling because film because they played this trick on him more than once oh yes yes and filmed it every yes, time every time <laughs> what about star quality you will have seen that in this show you need stars mm -hmm. what is star quality and is that something you can learn I worked on two or three occasions with um, Elaine Page. She used to get really annoyed if people weren't supportive, weren't doing their job properly, and she used to have the eyes and ears there. She wouldn't miss a trick. But her viewing of it was, it was like a pyramid. So she's at the top, but everybody underneath that pyramid is there to do a job. It's there to support, however little. When you come into this building at night, there's 250 people, 
make this show run. That's front of house, backstage, flies, and a star is perhaps the person who's playing the Phantom of the Opera. I don't know. But you're still part of a team. And he is nobody without that team underneath him doing their bit. You just want the people out there that are paying the money to be happy with what they're seeing. What is the last piece of theatre that you saw advertised, got excited about and booked a ticket for to go and see? I can't even remember what I went to see last. I'm going to see Sunset Boulevard in oh, May. Oh, yeah. I was bought... Those were my tickets for my 25th birthday from the company. Glenn Close in uh, Sunset Boulevard. So I'm really looking forward to that, the Coliseum. Phil, Brilliant. you're writing a book at the moment. Yes, I am. Um, could you tell us the name of it and how the name came about? The name of the book is Keep Walking Puff. And this comes from an experience I had coming to the theatre. And I had to change buses at uh, Green Park. And when I got upstairs, it was number 1922, whatever. Um, I got upstairs. There was a tatty brown wallet sitting on the back seat. But nobody had got down the bus. I was the only person that had gone up there. Nobody had got down off the bus. And I thought, well, that's strange. It's been sitting there for some while, so I picked it up and I had to look inside. And there was £110 in money, cash, notes. No identification as to who this belonged to at all, apart from six little tiny, those little passport-type photograph shots of a very elderly Jamaican granddaddy gentleman. So Vine Street Police Station was open at the time. I got to the police station. Who's inside the door but the Jamaican gentleman? So I went in. I said, I think I found what you're looking for. He said, my wallet. I said, one question, though. How much was in it? £110. I'm just going to buy my granddaughter's Christmas present. I said, well, there you are. There's your wallet. I found it. Plus your £110. I am absolutely delighted to have found you. I can't believe that I have, but I'm so delighted. He said, not as delighted as I am that you found me. He said, so months later, I'm at Victoria Station after a show, and I was walking down to platform 1519 where my train goes. And as I'm walking, this gentleman is coming towards me, and I'm thinking, that's him. And as he saw me, he walked straight to me, looked at me, went, keep walking, poof, and walked straight <laughs> past me. And I turned around and thought, what am I wearing? Polo neck. <laughs> so that's the title of my book. Keep walking. I, I st I've started writing my book, as you say, and I start off with explaining the title of my book. We have to leave you, ask you to leave yeah. now. Philip Griffiths, that's the half hour call for mm -hmm. your evening performance of Phantom of the Opera. Um, thank you very, very much for taking the time to speak to us. Can we ask you just very concisely, because I know you need to rush. Mm. If you had one piece of advice that you would give to somebody who wanted to work inside the West End, mm. what would it be? Is to get your training right. Get your training right, get your experience right. Don't put yourself up for something that you're not ready for. Prepare yourself for what you're going to do because disappointment can be pretty hard to take and it can knock a lot of people in the wrong way for what you're going. Don't waste casting people's time. Just make sure you're right for it. Do your homework. Phil Griffiths, thank you so much. Pleasure. You are a lady and a gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> a big thank you to Philip for taking the time to speak to us. We had a lot of fun chatting to him. Uh, and we just wanted to wish him a huge congratulations from all of us here at Inside the West End. So that's two of us. Yeah, it's just, just me and you. <laughs> but, you know, all of us are congratulating him. Mm, so it is. <laughs> it is worthwhile. Um, and let's face that, that record... No one's going to break that. 25 years in the same show. There's not going to be another show probably that runs that long. So, food for thought. 
Anyway, we love to hear what you think of the show on Twitter at Inside West End. Thank you to you guys who have already written reviews on iTunes about what we're doing. If you know anyone who likes theatre or likes listening to podcasts generally, tell them about what we're doing. Remember to stay tuned to the very end for a clip of the next episode. But before that, we make this podcast for free. If you've enjoyed it and you'd like to help us make future episodes, then here's how you can. Next time you shop online with Amazon, visit InsideTheWestEnd.com first. Click on any of the Amazon adverts on our site. It will take you straight to Amazon. Your shopping will cost you exactly the same as normal, but Amazon will give us a small kickback as a thank you. Also on InsideTheWestEnd.com, you'll see a donate button. If you'd like to make a direct contribution, then click on the button and follow the link. Now, as promised, we have a clip of next week's show. Our first ever episode on Inside the West End podcast was with the award-winning comedian and, of course, Matilda composer Tim Minchin. Um, He talked about his upcoming show, Groundhog Day, which is going to be at the Old Vic Theatre. It's a fascinating insight to how he puts together his musicals, and you should definitely check that out. That's our episode number one. But our next episode is a part two, where Tim discusses life, his view on the industry and how he's found himself in the place where he is now. It's a fascinating chat and here's a clip with Tim Minchin. It's the reason you need to come to peace with the fact that you just need to say, well, I'm a theatre maker or I'm an actor and, and I will be that regardless of how much I earn or what happens. Is not just because you can't control whether or not you get successful, but also the, some of the versions of success are genuinely not good for you and not healthy and not fun. There's two sides to it. One is being at peace with where you are and the other is not coveting something that's not actually so something you should covet.